Welcome to Because It Is, a conversation about faith, justice, and other things that matter. This podcast is hosted by Second Baptist Downtown in Little Rock, Arkansas. Second Baptist is a vibrant, historic downtown congregation whose faith compels us to seek justice, care for the oppressed, and pattern our lives after the way of Jesus. We are a unique Baptist church that prioritizes diversity and inclusion for all. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Cody J. Sanders about LGBTQIA inclusion and the gifts our LGBTQ siblings bring to our congregation. Dr. Sanders is the pastor to Old Cambridge Baptist Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and an American Baptist chaplain to Harvard University. He has written extensively about Christianity and the LGBTQ community and helps us consider how we can be a more compassionately curious congregation that creates space for all God's people. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Because It Is. Uh, we're delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Cody Sanders to our show. Uh, Cody, we're grateful for your work, uh, both in terms of the books you've authored and uh, just the wisdom that you've shared with uh, our broader Christian tradition in terms of care for LGBTQ people. Um, this is Pride Month, and we as a church are thinking about how best to bear public witness to our convictions in terms of affirmation of LGBTQ plus people. And when we thought about how to think deeply and live faithfully in this regard, uh, Cody, you were one of the first uh, people we thought of. And so we're grateful for your work and we appreciate you joining our podcast today. Thanks, Preston. Thanks for having me here. It's an honor to be with you and I'm really excited to uh, learn more about the good work that you're doing there. Well, good. Thanks. So Second Baptist in downtown Little Rock has been in a place of affirmation for uh, about five years now. And many people are surprised to learn that we arrived at that conviction, not in spite of biblical and theological convictions, but precisely because of biblical and theological convictions. Uh, if we have listeners who haven't gone on that journey and done that discernment, I wonder if you could give a thumbnail sketch. Uh, I know this is an unfair question, but that won't stop me from asking it. Could you give a thumbnail sketch of your biblical and theological work that led you to a place of affirmation? Sure. Uh, well, sort of autobiographically first, I uh, grew up in a, a small town in the upstate of South Carolina uh, in a Southern Baptist church where I really never heard anything about uh, sexual orientation uh, at all. If I had, it probably would have been negative, but it just so happened that it wasn't a church that really talked about that very much. So when I started to come to some awareness of my own sexual orientation, uh, I was kind of alone in that process. I didn't have anyone to talk to about what it meant to have uh, experience of same-sex attraction and things like that. Uh, so I started looking and digging and researching and trying to find the resources that I needed to help uh, just myself understand that uh, intersection between sexuality and my Christian tradition. Um, I think what it comes down to are sort of two, two pathways, both very important to different people and both uh, helpful in their own ways. Uh, one is the pathway of dealing with those six or seven 
texts of scripture throughout the, uh, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament that are presumably saying something about same-sex attraction, uh, though once one gets into the uh, biblical scholarship on those uh, six or seven passages, it becomes pretty clear that uh, the interpretation of those speaking to something like homosexuality is actually uh, quite a faulty interpretation historically. So there's that apologetics approach, sort of taking, uh, taking a, an approach to those texts and figuring out what they were really talking about. Um, then there's the, the, I think, more uh, generative life-giving approach that comes after that to look at the biblical text for all that it says about love and relationship and community and what it means to form loving relationships with other people. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the part where I think it's really helpful to uh, look at our own gendered embodiments, our own sexual embodiments in the context of scripture as a whole. Uh, and I there are a couple of recommendations I would, I would give to, to listeners. If what you're wanting is sort of that apologetics approach to figuring out how to interpret those six or seven passages in scripture that people often call the clobber texts, there's a great book by Matthew Vines called God and the Gay Christian. Very short, very readable, uh, and that's a really helpful text in that regard. And for, uh, for biblical treatments of gender identity, uh, Vines doesn't do a whole lot with that, but there's a great new book by Austin Hartke, H-A-R-T-K-E, called Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. And it's a really beautiful text that looks at the, uh, the experience and embodiment of trans people through a biblical lens. Both of those just very easy to read, approachable books uh, that I would recommend to the, to the listeners. Thank you. And we'll be sure to put those books in our show notes. And I, I think that's a launch point for the next question as well. I heard you distinguish between gender identity and sexual orientation. And as we've uh, been on our own congregational journey, we found how often people tend to conflate those two. So can you help the listeners understand the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity? Sure. Yeah. Um... You know, sexual orientation is probably what we've been talking about in churches for a lot longer. Uh, it's the question of uh, to whom one is attracted uh, sexually, affectionately, romantically. Uh, this is where terms like gay or bisexual or lesbian or straight uh, come in uh, to the frame. Uh, that's how we express our sexuality, our relationality, our uh, romantic connection to others. Uh, gender identity is about the embodiment of our gender. Gender, uh, we, we typically think about terms male and female, although we know at this point that those terms don't really fit the entirety of everyone's experience of gender. Uh, there are uh, people who are, are sort of given an identity at some point by parents or by medical professionals, and that identity as male or female doesn't actually uh, fit the lived experience of that person. People with that experience uh, are often the folks that we uh, use the term trans or transgender for, uh, but then there are also people who don't experience any fixed kind of uh, attachment to either male or female as an identifying uh, marker of their gendered embodiment. So then you might uh, use terms like 
gender fluid for someone who sort of moves between those two binary terms, or agender for someone who doesn't see themselves through those terms at all, uh, or gender queer and things like that. So yeah, the, the, the sexual orientation piece is about how we uh, experience attraction, form relationships, experience romance, that kind of thing. And gender identity is about how we kind of identify ourselves as gendered. Uh, and, you know, if you aren't trans and you aren't genderqueer and you aren't uh, gender fluid or something like that, if you sort of if, uh, identify with the, uh, the gender that was assigned to you at birth that you uh, kind of taught that you were, then we, that has a term too. And then we shouldn't just term people who fall outside the uh, kind of dominant norm. So if that is the case for you, then the term for that experience of gender is cisgender, C-I-S gender. Yeah, thanks for that. So normally on these podcasts, uh, Brittany Stilwell, my colleague is on the other side of the microphone editing and Lord knows I need a lot of editing. Uh, but for this conversation, we brought her on this side of the mic. Um, Brittany, thanks for joining us today. I wonder if you have any questions for Cody. Yeah, happy to be here. And thanks, Cody. I wanted to jump in um, on this conversation about, about words and terms, because one of the things that you really helped me with in your book, A Brief Guide to Ministry with LGBTQIA Youth, um, which I'll put in the show notes for sure, um, was just the glossary of terms and one of the things that stood out to me immediately is that you pointed out that this is always changing. Um, and by the time the book is published, it's probably changed again. And so will you talk with us a little bit about terms? It can get so overwhelming um, to hear someone say a word and you don't know what they're talking about. And it feels like a totally different language. Um, you gave me permission to ask. So will you talk a little bit about terms and how to navigate yeah. this? Sure. Yeah. And the terminology, I think, uh, is is often a challenge for people. It becomes frustrating for people because they don't they don't quite know what all the terms mean and they haven't quite kept up with all the terms. And I first just want to say to folks who are listening that that's OK. Uh, and and one invitation I would like to, uh, to offer is for you to see this proliferation of terms becoming bigger and bigger, you know, in, in our glossaries of sexual orientation and gender identity as a good thing uh, because for a really long time lgbtq people have had our experiences named for us by terms that we didn't choose to use oftentimes those terms start out as very derogatory terms or they start out as very pathologizing medicalized terms and for the last i don't know 30 40 years i think people have been taking back the ability to name their own experiences with uh, a renewed kind of freedom. And the proliferation of terms is an indicator that we have we've started to become able more freely to name our own experiences rather than have them named for us. So yes, the acronym keeps growing larger, the terminology uh, gets more uh, complex, but I think the important thing is for anyone that gets confused about those terms when they encounter them somewhere is, you know, not to express frustration over that, uh, that experience, but just to express curiosity over that experience. Oh, you, you named a term, uh, uh, you know, agender that I didn't understand. I've never heard that term before. Can you explain what that term means to you? Uh, that kind of really respectful, compassionately curious question is always a welcomed question 
as opposed to the frustrated response of, you know, I don't understand these terms, why can't they be simpler, that kind of thing. So, you know, just approaching that, that kind of, um, that kind of confusion or sense of curiosity can be really helpful. Absolutely. I, I find that um, as a non-teenager anymore, working with teenagers, I find myself asking all the time, what are you talking about? Um, and so for that to just be part of the, the question, but it is hard when you don't know what people are talking about and feel like they're lost. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that can be helpful is just kind of reading uh, reading peri you know, like a very current kind of periodical literature. I mean, LGBTQ publications, newspapers, magazines, websites, things like that, because you'll pick up some of the terminology uh, and, and, and see, you know, something you didn't recognize and go look it up and that kind of thing. So that can be kind of helpful just to keep up with some terms if you're interested. But, you know, asking respectfully and in a caring way is also always helpful. Cody, I lead a religious institution and uh, can become exhausted with some of the church bashing of our day. And yet it's not lost on me how religion proper and many churches more acutely have played more of a role in the wounding than the healing uh, in this regard. Can you talk a bit about how religion has caused harm to LGBTQ plus people? Yeah, that's a really nice question. It's, uh, uh, I think, a question a lot of churches are hesitant to ask because there is so much pain and harm that has been tied up with LGBTQ people's experience with the churches. And I also, you know, want to acknowledge that churches, a very small, you know, kind of minority of churches have also been for decades and decades at the, at the forefront of helping to uh, work toward liberative spaces, freedom, justice for LGBTQ people too. So it's a complex picture, but I think the, in the majority, uh, churches have often perpetrated harm through a couple of, of ways. I mean, we can all see the harm that, um, you know, big loud churches like uh, Westboro Baptist Church and all those famous ones that show up in public places, say derogatory things about gay people and Proclaim this theology of of, um, of gay people being sinful and going to hell and all that kinds of stuff as harmful. But the more subtle harm, I think, comes in the pervasive way that many churches, which never say anything overtly harmful, just don't say anything at all. Yeah. Um, when I was doing research on uh, suicidality among LGBTQ people for the last book that I published, one of the Respond, one of the interviewees talked about how, you know, he heard this message, this condemnatory message about uh, gay people one time, very explicitly. And he said, he said, after that, they never had to say it in those words again. It was the silence that communicated that his experience wasn't valid. Uh, it was, he, he described it like a, a kind of Pavlovian bell that would go off. It was a tone of voice that he recognized, and it just was a, a, a replaying of that tape in his mind uh, after that. So the silences have been really harmful to LGBT uh, people over the, over the years. And that's a good reminder about how theology is both caught and taught in the church, right? There are the things that we explicitly say and then there are the things that are just in the ether of the atmosphere that everyone is breathing. 
uh, that's a good word for for all churches to consider, I think. Let's talk a little bit about the youth group in particular, because I guess I believe pretty strongly that the youth group is a microcosm of the church. So the things that we're practicing um, on in our youth space apply to the whole church as well. But how I'm I strive to make our space. It's the fourth floor of our church. So I strive to make the fourth floor a safe place from our youth to be who they are and to discern and discover who they are in all the ways of the things that they're um, discovering identity. What suggestions do you have for not for to not be silent, to make sure that they know explicitly that they are loved and cared for in all the things, but particularly in sexual orientation and gender identity? Uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind is, is very simple. It's to, to acknowledge the presence of LGBTQ people in the world, even if you don't think they're in the room because likely they are in the room, even if you don't know they're in the room. So, you know, when you're, when you're talking to youth about relationships, for example, and you're giving examples of, of, of relationships, making some of those examples relationships that are same-sex relationships or something like that. When you're talking about gender or you're just talking about people in, in general, you don't always use male and female pronouns for people that you also incorporate uh, they, them pronouns and the acknowledgement that there are people who don't live within the gender binary. So the way language in that case can just open space for people to be in that space and to breathe a little easier. That can be really uh, liberating. Um, but, you know, also thinking through, like if your church has um, uh, any kind of sexuality education curriculum, like a lot of churches use our whole lives, uh, to, to think about how that curriculum uh, speaks to the experience of LGBTQ people as well. Um, and then, you know, in the casual conversations, uh, when, people, uh, when people are asking about uh, how life is going and significant relationships and things like that, just not making the assumption that, you know, when you ask about someone's significant other, that that significant other is someone of the quote unquote opposite sex, uh, just attending to the way language either opens space or closes space for people to uh, bring the fullness of their embodiment into the room. I led a queer Bible study recently for a group of uh, uh, college and graduate school students, and the Bible study itself was not about, you know, LGBTQ themes. We were just studying the Gospel of Mark, uh, but it was explicitly a space for queer people to come and study the Bible. And I just remember one woman in that group saying it was the first time she's ever felt like she was able to come to a Bible study and not sort of hold her breath the whole time and be fearful of saying something that she was gonna be judged for. Even though the Bible study itself wasn't about LGBTQ issues, it was just a space that was really, really clearly a space of openness and acceptance and embrace and, uh, and celebration of queer people. And that, that the release of that tension that one is going to get caught in this accidental space of judgment or microaggression or whatever can be really helpful for, for youth just to be able to breathe and be. Which takes time and trust and yeah. a whole bunch of spirit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the acknowledgement that everyone is going to mess up mm -hmm. at some point. And when that happens, to be able to have the community norms in that youth group mm -hmm. to say that people know it's okay to say, oh, you know, when you said this thing, um, 
this is how I heard it. And it was, it was kind of hurtful. And I don't think you meant it, but I wanted you to know it. And for that person to receive that, not in a, a reactive or defensive way, but to say, oh gosh, I didn't even think about that, but that's really helpful. Thank you for, for telling me. I'm really sorry that I, that I did that. You know, I want to do better next time. So those kinds of norms that are created to allow those, those microaggressions just to be brought into speech a bit when they occur can be helpful as well. Yeah. And I guess I hope that the adults in the room are modeling that as well when we inevitably blunder that we're catching ourselves along the way. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I want to say that it is hard because often those blunders uh, go against your explicit theology or go against your explicit desire to welcome and embrace and affirm. So it can feel really embarrassing and it can feel uh, like it's getting your defenses up when someone points them out because you really don't, you didn't want to communicate that thing, but you accidentally did. So that, that also takes a bit of practice and humility mm. to receive that correction or that acknowledgement. Yeah. Hopefully knowing better helps us to do better too. So we need people to point them out to us mm-hmm. along the way. I'm curious, um, a lot of my youth are on this discernment journey. And in your book, you talk about both sexual orientation and gender identity as a journey. So could you talk a little bit about, we, we tend to like to fix it somewhere um, on so we can hold it and contain it. Can you talk a little bit about the journey and how we might help people along the journey of discernment? Yeah, and I like that, that, uh, that phrase of the journey of discernment because it, it really indicates that there's something sacred about this process. It's, it's, a, it's a process of coming to uh, a greater sense of a relationship with one's own self, in addition to those in your community and to God. It is, uh, it is a process of discernment that I think for many LGBTQ people growing up in churches uh, involves a lot of prayer, involves a lot of uh, uh, reading of the of the biblical text it certainly did for me when i was growing up in south carolina um we've often presumed and for some people this has been true but not for everyone we've also often presumed that this the, the knowledge of one's sexual orientation or gender identity is really clear really early we know it and the 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 thing that we have to do then is come out well, that just hasn't been a, a model that's fit everyone's experience. And that certainly is a model that was developed more around sexual orientation than it was around gender identity. Um, and so I really like the, uh, the way that, um, uh, I think it's Justin Tannis in his uh, book on transgender pastoral care talks about, um, talks about the emergence of one's sense of gender identity and coming to a, a, a knowledge of that as being almost like a call, discerning one's call, discerning one's sense of who God created one to be. Uh, And that being a process that sometimes takes some time and some really careful companionship by ministers and parents and friends and people like that. I also like the way that a a, a friend of mine named Darnell Moore uh, talked about uh, reframing the notion of coming out as this one-time kind of static thing that one has to do. And he talked about it with the phrase inviting in. I think that's helpful because it puts the, it puts the uh, responsibility on everybody else to be good guests, 
rather than the responsibility on the LGBT person to make this big, bold move that then is supposed to be done at that point. Because all throughout your life, it's always a process of figuring out who you want to invite into that sacred place of your own your own sense of self, who you are, uh, your own soul, you know. And, and then for, for the people that are invited in to that sacred place to be respectful guests in that person's that person's self, that person's soul. Um, so I, yeah, I think that, that that acknowledgement of it is a process, and it's something that sometimes takes time and takes um, takes some attempts to experiment with language and figure out what what language even fits for one's experience is a really gentle and helpful way of companion companioning youth on that journey. Uh, the first youth. Um, that ever came, well, it felt like coming out to me. I remember like kind of bracing myself for all the things that I knew I needed to do to make sure that they knew they were comfortable and welcome and that I was with them. And it, but it came so naturally. So of course you're fine with this. And this is, I'm just inviting you to tell me, I'm just telling you a little bit of who I am. And that's been my experience every time since. Um, and I think it's actually quite beautiful uh, that we're moving more to a place where it's not such a huge, scary deal, though I know that it is, um, but it's more, I think the environment is more, they're more allowed to say these things to certain people. And I'm grateful for the invitation when I get it um, yeah. along the way. Well, and I think that says something about the kind of, uh, of space that you've cultivated there at Second Baptist and the youth group specifically. I mean, uh, the, the fact that it isn't as difficult for them to bring this into speech with you uh, is because you've cultivated a, a, a relationship of trust and of care. And this church is cultivating itself as a place of trustworthiness and caring for LGBT people. So it may be a really difficult thing for them to do a lot of other places in their life, but that is, that is not with you is a really good sign that you're doing some really helpful and important work there in your affirmation of LGBTQ people. I do find my teenagers struggling with the the world's view of sexuality in particular um, and how to talk with them about that in a healthy way. We're not just um, experimenting and testing and nothing matters. There's still an ethic that goes behind this. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about how we help to maintain the sacredness of our identity, both in sexual orientation and gender? identity um, in a world that says you do you, anything goes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a helpful question. Um, and I think it's, we've also sort of been uh, the uh, recipient of a lot of really bad messages from uh, kind of Christian purity culture and the ways that we either, you know, we have to uh, shut down so much conversation and so much exploration because of this notion that, that, that all of these boundaries are just so tightly drawn around us. So, yeah, I mean, I think framing, framing that question in, um, it, in terms of relationship is really helpful. You know, I, I particularly like the, the, the way that many, uh, many people talk, not just about sexual orientation, but about affectional orientation because it acknowledges that there is a complexity to this experience. It's not 
completely or totally described by our sexual attraction to other people, but there is also uh, an affective or feeling dimension to it, a relational dimension to it, uh, a romantic dimension to it. So being able to talk about sex and sexuality in this more expansive and open way and to bring into that conversation and the emerging ethics around how one wants to practice relationship and how one is practicing relationship in light of what they are, are reading in the biblical text and what they are, are hearing from the mission and message of Jesus about what it means to, to uh, form relationship with others in intimacy. That's uh, pretty helpful too. And some, and some uh, you know, ecclesial uh, sexual, sexual uh, education materials, like the one I mentioned, our whole lives, tends to do that pretty well. Uh, that was the curriculum developed by the UCC and the UU churches. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that's a really helpful way to, uh, to help youth expand their, think, their thinking and, and discernment about how, how their own sexual, affectional, romantic, relational lives intersects with their Christian commitments. We've talked a lot about the learning curve today and in, in terms of, you know, defining terms and learning about the varieties of uh, orientations and identities. What would you say to encourage people wherever they are on that learning curve to keep going, that this is a journey, albeit difficult in some ways, uh, and maybe even frustrating in some ways, that this journey is worth it? How, how would you encourage people on that journey? Well, I think the main thing is to focus on the why of it. You know, why it's it's not an academic exercise for most people. I think it's because that they they really want to be a caring, affirming presence in the lives of LGBTQ people. Uh, I did a workshop a few years ago at this, um, this conference center up in Maine, and uh, it was you know a workshop on sort of the basics of LGBTQIA experience and I expected it to be you know younger folks in that workshop and when I got there it was a circle of about a dozen 65 plus attendees and then when I asked them why they were there they said my grandchild my grandchild my daughter my grandchild has a friend my daughter you know they they were all there because they wanted to do better for their own loved ones and I think that's the case also for a lot of people in their churches. They just want to be able to be a more uh, attentive and caring presence for the LGBTQ people in their lives. Um, and it doesn't have to consume uh, the entirety of your time and attention. It, it really is just a kind of a process of paying better attention to the lived experiences of those you care about. Um, and then kind of filling in some of the gaps in your own knowledge when you realize there are things that you want to know that you didn't already know. And the important thing about that piece of it is not to always go to the LGBT people you know to ask them to fill in all your gaps in the knowledge that you want to acquire, you know, because there are really good books that are out there and there are really helpful websites that are out there. And one of the things that I hear consistently, especially from LGBTQ college age students, is what makes for a good ally is that they do the work that they need to do on, you know, kind of understanding LGBTQ concerns without 
making me teach them all of the things that they need to know. So I think it's it's very helpful and perfectly okay to ask questions of LGBTQ people when there's something that you don't understand that they've said or whatever, you're, you're, not, you're being interested in their lives. But when it becomes, you know, asking them to educate you about all the things you want to know about LGBTQ issues, that, that's where you should take some responsibility to, you know, do your own research or have some conversation with someone else or invite an LGBTQ person, you know, like me to come and do that work because that's the work that we've signed up to do and we, we like doing it. And we don't mind going and answering all your questions. Yeah, that's great. We've been a stated affirming church for several years now. I wonder how you might challenge us to to live into that and embody that as a church, uh, not just in our professions, but in our practice. Um, you know, there's hate uh, legislation that's moving from state to state. Uh, we're semi-bracing for that in Arkansas uh, in the next legislative session. I, I just wonder how you might challenge a church like Second to, to practice our profession in terms of uh, public witness and external uh, presence. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I work with a lot of churches these days asking that question. We've been affirming for a while, and now we're trying to figure out how to really live into that identity, that commitment. Um, and so I'm really happy to hear that that's the question you're asking. And I have a few things that come to mind. I also have a little short article coming out in Good Faith Media this week for their Pride series that maybe you can link in the show notes to on those next steps beyond becoming affirming. Uh, so a few things that come to mind I'll just name. Uh, one is um, well, starting with a story of another interview participant of mine in my suicide research. Um, he was uh, about 50 or so years old when I interviewed him. Uh, we, we called, his name is Thomas. And Thomas um, had had a suicide attempt early in his, his life. This uh, was the same guy I was talking about earlier who very early on in his life Got, it received the message from his church that being LGBT, being gay specifically for him was a sin. And, uh, and uh, after his suicide attempt, he, he left the church, but he continued to practice his faith. In fact, the ways that he practiced his faith were incredible to me. Uh, he was, he, the way he described the role of prayer and the Bible in his life were unlike most of the testimonies I hear about that from people who have lived their whole life in the church. And Thomas, for the last 30 years of his life, had lived his life outside of the church because he didn't know there were any places he could go to open the gay man. And what struck me about him telling me this was that when we were interviewing, um, when I was interviewing him, we were sitting within about two miles of probably six or seven LGBT affirming churches that I could have told him were there. But he had lived all this time not knowing that anything existed. I think that's an indictment on a lot of our churches that do this hard, hard work to become an affirming congregation, often very painful work, often lose members over this, often have you know this uh, intensely deliberative and discerning time that comes to this point of becoming affirming of LGBT people, and then we don't tell anybody about it. And that's the first piece. 
is to make sure that the message is coming through really, really clearly. Because what I find, I find uh, in a lot of affirming churches is that they, they think the message of welcome is obviously inclusive of LGBT people. I was riding around a town in Maine one time with my partner, uh, and he uh, is not a particularly church, churchy person. Uh, and so I knew he wouldn't know this language. And that was a church that had open and affirming on their church side. And I said, do you have any idea what they mean by that? And he said, oh, I just assume they think they're, that they're a pretty welcoming congregation. And I said, well, do you think they have, do you think that has anything to do with LGBTQ people? He said, no, why would I ever think that? So all this language that we've used, welcoming, affirming, open and affirming, more light, reconciling, et cetera, et cetera, is all insider speech. I mean, that's stuff that people in our denominations know about, but LGBT people who are passing by our churches have no idea what that language means. So having something on your sign, like a rainbow flag, or just the, you know, a very explicit message of, you know, like affirming LGBTQ lives or something like that, so that it's really clear that that's a part of your identity. Uh, and, you know, making that prominent on your website so people don't have to go searching like five or six pages deep to find that information is really helpful. Because what, what, what is surprising still, after LGBT people have experienced so much uh, harm at the hands of many churches, is that there are LGBT people looking for churches like yours and mine, and we need to help them find us. Um, and beyond that, I think there are a couple of really helpful things to, to think about. You know, no church became affirming of LGBT people just out of the blue, as if it was a brand new thing that they just did. It's related to a whole series of decisions and commitments that your congregation has made probably for the last half century or more. And when that question came up, if you kind of look at the whole narrative of the congregation, you could probably see, yeah, of course that question came up because this is the kind of church we have become. Right. So a lot of the work that I've done with churches who are trying to figure out their next step and living that out is how your commitment to be LGBT affirming relates to your other kinds of commitments. Mm -hmm. For example, I was working with a, a, a church in another Southern city, very large, big steeple, stately kind of church. And uh, we were talking about these, this church narrative and what their, how their church came to this place. And it became clear that this church had a really, really long history of involvement in economic justice in their community, of engaging in homelessness services in their community. So when I just like offered this very small piece of knowledge that, you know, LGBTQ youth are about five to 7% of the whole population in the U.S., but LGBTQ youth comprise 45% of homeless youth in the U.S., right. uh, they started to see these connections that they had never made before mm -hmm. uh, in a city that really didn't have any kind of services to, uh, to provide care for LGBTQ youth who might become homeless. So that's the kind of thing I think is to look at your church's commitments, to look at your community's needs and how those come together in some outward expression of care and concern and justice for LGBTQ people in your community. And the legislation piece is a big one. There are bills in uh, dozens of states right now that are especially targeting trans youth 
uh, and for churches to be able to have a public voice in, in that matter, because most of these things are really, really local. Sometimes they're, you know, in the state legislature, but sometimes they're school board right. uh, conversations or they're city council mm -hmm. conversations. So a church can make a really big difference in those, in those conversations. And that's an expression of your commitment that LGBTQ lives are sacred and that, that preserving the health and dignity and flourishing of LGBTQ life is an issue of justice to which you are called. Right. That's, that's such a good word for us at Second, and we have found to be true everything that you just said, how the, the macro arc of our church's history, the, uh, the concerns for justice, a gospel that asks who's vulnerable in this room, you know, mm -hmm. the, the same things that prompt us to care about racial justice, the same hermeneutical trajectories that motivate us to uh, empower and celebrate women in ministry is the same hermeneutical trajectory and the same missional impulse that led us to a place of affirmation of LGBTQ plus people. Uh, so such a good word for us in that regard. I guess my last question for you, Cody, is this. When we began our discernment process, I remember thinking about how much uh, LGBTQ plus people needed the church, right? And I, I still think that's true. They, they do need churches. We've already named that. What I've discovered, though, along the way is how much the church needs LGBTQ plus people. Uh, what gifts do you believe what graces do you believe lgbtq plus people bring to local congregations yeah, that's, i really love that question uh i wish more churches asked that that very question um in fact the very first book i ever wrote was about that uh it's called queer lessons for churches in the straight and narrow what all christians can learn from lgbtq lives hmm. uh because i I got really tired of always being invited everywhere to talk about why LGBT people should be able to be ordained or be able to be married or whatever, to make this defense for why we should right. belong into the structures of churches. Um, and so one, one time when I was doing that kind of thing, I just decided to ask a different question, to ask what churches should be learning from LGBTQ people. And I started to look at LGBTQ lives and experiences um, in ways that brought out the beauty and bravery and courage and tenacity of uh, LGBT people's faith and how we've cultivated faith on the margins of most churches and denominations for decades and decades, you know, and, and we've done some really incredible work in that regard. I mean, the story of the very first um, church founded uh, by LGBTQ people uh, is a story of incredible courage and tenacity. I won't tell it now because it'll probably take the rest of our time, but I would really, I would point, I would point folks to the historical work of a, a scholar named Heather Rachel White. Uh, she wrote a great book called Reforming Sodom about these, her questions about uh, uh, queer religious organizing, things like that. Um, but also, LGBT people have been forming community at the margins of their own families and churches and cities and, and, and all this for generations. You know, when, when they, they needed life-saving structures for 
uh, for example, during the AIDS epidemic. The communities that formed around that, which were, you know, we, we know more about the activistic ones, the ones that actually got the government to pay attention to the crisis and do something about it. But e even more beautiful are these compassionate communities that were not divorced from the activist ones. They were often the very same groups doing both of these things. But these compassionate communities that grew up around LGBT people who were uh, suffering the effects of HIV and AIDS to care for them and their own families and certainly their churches and even the medical establishments would not care for them. Um, so yeah, questions of faithfulness, questions of relationship, questions of community. Uh, if, if we look compassionately at LGBT lives, we see this um, as well of, of sacred wisdom that if we asked those kinds of questions like you just asked Preston, we could be learning something that would benefit our own communities, that would help teach us something that we've never maybe had to learn, but that we maybe should know. Uh, and we could know that through looking at not just the, the LGBTQ lives that are in our congregation, but this whole history of LGBTQ people that, um, that the stories of which don't get passed down to us as queer people. You know, they're not passed down in families like stories related to race or nationality would be. They're not passed down in most churches like the stories of faith typically are. So uh, a young LGBT person in your church right now has probably never received these sacred narratives of their LGBTQ forebearers because there's been no one to pass those stories along to them. So telling the stories, I think, are really important. Uh, and it's a really important tool of generating a, a capacity for flourishing for LGBTQ people and for the churches that are committed to, uh, to LGBTQ affirmation. Yeah. If you are listening to this podcast today and identify as LGBTQ+, if you're a family that uh, loves someone who's LGBTQ+, uh, we at Second Baptist in downtown Little Rock want you to know that you have a place with us, and uh, we care about you, we love you, and want God's best for you. And so just know that there are ministers and churches that see you and want to know you and love you well and wholesomely uh, in these days. If you're a person who's on the learning curve in this regard, as a matter of your own journey of faith, we will meet you where you are on that curve and journey with you because we're on the same one and we will fall down together. We'll get up together and we'll keep going together in this regard. Uh, there is beauty ahead. And so just know that if you live in central Arkansas and any of those descriptors match you, uh, you have a place at Second Baptist in downtown Little Rock. Uh, Cody, whether you realize it or not, you've been a guide for us already on this journey because of your work and even more so because of this uh, time together for which we're most grateful. So blessings on you, my friend. Uh, thanks for being a, a visitor to the podcast and a friend to a church you've never met before. Thank you, Preston and Brittany, and thank you, Second Baptist, for letting me into your lives in this way. I really appreciate it. Hopefully one day I'll be able to, to see you all in person. Sounds good. Grace and peace, everybody. As you go, go and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Do so as if it's the most important thing in all the world, because it is. Thank you for listening to Because It Is. These are just some of the things that matter to us at Second Baptist Church downtown. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit us online at 2bclr.com. That's the number 2bclr.com. And like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Brittany Stilwell and edited by Randy Schoenig with Fresh Air Media.